So this morning, um, <clears throat> I want to talk about uh, the meaning of salvation in five stories. Now, I've been listening to Jesse Winchester, who was a guitarist, a vocalist, and a composer, facing death with an incurable form of cancer with not much time to live. In his last album, A Reasonable Amount of Trouble, he sang a song, perhaps one of his last, if not his last song, All That We Have Is Now. It really brings you face to face with the reality of death and the need for salvation. When it was springtime, when we married, he'll cause January, bring on the ice and storm, cause we got love to keep us warm, but don't keep winter waiting. That we have is now. So let's just play together in whatever weather, sunshine in the park. We'll joke of stories when it's dark and laugh to have the feeling, cry a perfect tear. Cause all that we have is now. And he passed, <clears throat> and uh, of course, uh, sad, we all face this, and uh, the question is, uh, what are we doing to prepare? In Columbus, Ohio, in the 1980s, there was a couple who found love by finding each other. They attended Beth Messiah. They had six kids, and all seemed perfect. Then tragedy hit. The wife was struck with a rare form of an incurable blood cancer. It ultimately took her life. But when she was still battling with this incurable blood cancer, there was one time that uh, my wife and two kids and I were riding down a street and there was their house. Uh, that is the house of this uh, couple uh, where the mother 
the wife was battling cancer. And Seth and Rena, who were about age 13 and 10, respectively, were in the car with us. And Seth said, when we passed that house, he said, it looks like a normal house, meaning you can't tell what's going on beyond the doors of a house. Rena responded, behind every door is a story. It's so true. And storytelling is in vogue now. Yeshua was a storyteller. And today we have a revival of this homiletical approach. So here's the meaning of salvation in five stories. Story number one. There's a story that exists in the Babylonian Talmud and in another rabbinical source that seeks to explain why the second temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. Now, it's midrashic, meaning that it's, it's literary, and uh, it can accommodate more than one understanding. Uh, it answers a question that's left open by the Hebrew Bible because the Hebrew Bible didn't reach into the era of, of Second Temple. The story may not even be true, but the principle that flows from it is one that is worthy of our consideration. The story goes like this. A wealthy man had an enemy named Barkamsa and a friend named Kamsa. The wealthy man threw a banquet and gave his guest list to a messenger to deliver an invitation personally to each of the invited guests. In the invitation list was Kamsa, the wealthy man's friend. But instead, the the messenger mistakenly invited Bar Kamsa, the wealthy man's enemy. When Bar Kamsa showed up at the wealthy man's uh, banquet, the wealthy man demanded, demanded that he leave. Bar Kamsa sought to reason with him so that he would not be humiliated. He even offered to pay for the whole banquet if he could stay. The host refused and had him thrown out. No one at the banquet took up for Barkamsa. No one sought to dissuade the rich host from that kind of brutal treatment. Barkamsa sought revenge for the humiliation. He knew that the Jewish priests in the temple offered up sacrifices daily for Rome, which the Roman government actually paid for. He went to the Roman governor and he told him that the Jews in Jerusalem were not really sacrificing the animals that Rome was providing, for, but instead they were using them as food. The governor refused to believe it. So Barkamsa then brought the governor to Jerusalem, and the governor brought the sacrifices himself. But secretly during the night, Barkamsa caused a blemish to, cut, uh, to be cut in the upper eye lid of the sacrifice. Some say the sclera of the eye. This made the sacrifice unkosher. Well, <clears throat> the priests refused to offer the sacrifice because they were blemished. And the governor inquired as to why is it that you're not sacrificing uh, the Roman uh, sacrifices that are being provided. And the priest rationalized, and he said, well, uh, we'll do it tomorrow. 
And the governor realized that what Bar Kamsa told him was true. The governor told the emperor, and the emperor laid siege to Jerusalem and ultimately destroyed the temple. The sages saw this as punishment for prominent sages at the banquet not intervening and stopping the humiliating treatment of Bar Kamsa. The moral is that the temple was destroyed for hatred without a cause. That is mistreatment of one Jew to another. It violated love your neighbor, which is prominent in scripture. It demonstrated how one little mistreatment affecting so few can set off a chain reaction and negatively impact a whole nation to the extent that they lost their sovereignty, they lost their temple, they lost their priesthood, and basically were uh, in uh, a condition of diaspora, of exile. Instead of salvation, we get destruction, all because a messenger invited the wrong person and it ballooned into a big megillah. Well, we can talk about salvation, but to really understand it, we need first is here to focus on the opposite of salvation, which is destruction. The opposite of deliverance, which is enslavement. The opposite of extending a hand to somebody, which is pushing them away. The Barkamsa story tells us that behavior matters. How you react matters. The Jewish people lost their temple, they lost their land, their sovereignty because of the way that the host treated a brother, a lawnsman. We're all hosts, and we need to be very careful in our treatment. Think about that the next time you even think about being inhospitable. We better find a better way to get along with people and particularly to get along with our brother, Yeshua. Forty years after his death, the temple was destroyed. And perhaps the rabbis were right uh, that the temple was destroyed for the cause of hatred. Hatred without a cause. It is time to make peace, and reconciliation with Yeshua to reconcile with who he is because he really holds the key to a walk in the pleasant ways of God. He is salvation, as we know. That's his name, Yeshua. He's able to save us from destruction, but we are also obligated to walk uprightly and treat our brethren with love and respect to go the extra mile, and to sacrifice. Story number two. Now let's look at the opposite of destruction, which is deliverance and salvation that God continuously brings to our memory. We were slaves in Egypt. We were oppressed. We were humiliated. We had a slave mentality, and we were foreigners estranged from our land, suffering at the hands of others, and we cried out, and God heard, and God raised up Moses, the deliverer, and this is the story that we are to tell our children from generation to generation, and we have been faithful at that for 3,500 years, and we are still reenacting that Passover 
and accounting ourselves as having been there in Egypt and has, having been delivered as well. It's a story that speaks to every person, Jewish and non-Jewish, is a testimony of God's might and power and love and empathy. It inspired the President of the United States to free the slaves. It inspired the Civil Rights Movement and Martin Luther King, who sang the hymnal and shouted, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we're free at last. It moved people like Harriet Beecher Stowe and Frederick Douglass and, yes, Abraham Joshua Heschel, Julian Bond, John Lewis, to peaceful protest and constructive action. We need to find a way, too, to link arms and cross that bridge in Selma in a peaceful way and confront the antagonistic forces. Yes, the children of Israel were saved from destruction. Salvation deals with, with the eternal here and now. All that we have is now, but now is really forever. And so that would be enough. There's more because it's the love story of the ages that God undressed and came down and appeared to Moses at the bush that was not consumable and called him to action to a better and more glorious existence. That first coming, physically, delivering the Jewish people from enslavement and opposition, pre-shadowed the great event to come, sort of the second coming of God to impart everlasting joy and existence that starts now. Because all we really have is now. It means that we are alive today and not enslaved. That means you're free to do God's will, unshackled, if you will. That's what really salvation means, deliverance from the mental, physical, spiritual oppression that accompanies life without the Ruach HaKodesh, without the Holy Spirit, that indwells those that trust in Him. Salvation means a new beginning where we can be happy doing the things that God wants us to do. It means a new set of taste buds. The scriptures say, old things pass away. Behold, all things have become new. And in the Passover story, one man called to obedience by God made a difference and was the conduit, the facilitator for the salvation of a whole nation. The rich man in the Bar Kamsa uh, story caused the destruction through a chain of negative events, while one man, Moses, caused the salvation of a nation through a chain of positive events. In fact, the peoplehood that Moses saved, God's chosen, the Israelites, would come to present the word of God to the world and produce the Messiah, Yeshua, our salvation. Faith and trust in the Lord produces salvation. In fact, we have a story about a whole world being spared as a result of it in story number three. Now, in the Noahic story, we see the deliverance of the whole world through a flood by faith where Noah and his family were safe from the oncoming deluge. Believing God and following him into the ark of 
safety was key. Noah was a man alone in his faith, but it made all the difference for mankind. Safety is a wonderful thing, and salvation is all about safety. I played Little League Baseball in Cincinnati, Ohio, the same league that Pete Rose played in, and we were about the same age. No, I didn't know him, uh, <laughs> and I didn't play against him. Uh, I was 10 years old. When I first played, I was short, and I was skinny, and the field looked really big, and the pitcher was scary, and the catcher was even scarier. I was not a power hitter, but I batted second in the lineup because I knew how to get on base by bunting, by walking, by singling, by running it out when the catcher dropped the, the third strike, being hit by a pitch, whatever it took. And whenever I got on base, I could steal bases. For me, the safest place on the field was on base. And I longed to run hard and to slide to be safe. The bases provided the security that I needed on the field. This little short, scrawny guy that wouldn't have otherwise been noticed uh, except for the tenacity that I demonstrated uh, when I was at bat and when I was, was running. Um, for Noah, it was the boat. For me, it was the base. As believers today, it's in the cleft of the rock. Being in a safety zone is walking with Yeshua by your side, and it makes all the difference in the world. We're called to step out of our comfort zone. We are called to step out of our comfort zone, like Noah did, and into God's faith boat. King David was a person like us with weaknesses and passions, and here we have the fourth story of his fall and his restoration. The story the prophet Nathan tells David, so here's sort of a story within a story, uh, after David had sinned with uh, Bathsheba and also when he put Uriah, her husband, out in the battle to die, is very simple. In essence, he's telling, Nathan tells David, there are two men that lived in the same city. You see, you have to approach a king, especially a one who has that kind of power, you know. Uh, so through prayer, God gave him, obviously, the way to approach David with the story. And he said that there two men lived in the same city. One was very rich and one was very poor. The rich man had flocks and herds. The rich man did not just have a large flock and a large herd. He had many flocks and many herds. We would say this man was filthy rich. The poor man had but one lamb. This was his pet lamb. He purchased it. He raised it in his own home. The lamb spent much time in the man's lap and in his arms uh, being carried, carried all about by him. It lived inside the house, not outside, being hand-fed with food from the table and even drinking from his owner's cup. The rich man had a guest drop in for a visit, and as the host, he was obligated to provide a meal. The rich man decided upon lamb, and yet he was not willing to, to sacrifice 
even one lamb from his many flocks, from all that he owned. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb, slaughtered, and served it to his guest so as not to suffer any losses personally. He not only forced the poor man to pick up the tab, but uh, he deprived the man of his only, only pet lamb, who he had obviously, for sure, had named and, and uh, who he loved, and they were very uh, close, and one that was like a member of his family. David was outraged when he heard this. When he heard this story, and he thought this, this man should be put to death. Nathan said to David, You are this man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Nathan said, It is I who Nathan, uh, it is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have given you uh, many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, have taken his wife to be your wife. And thus says the Lord, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. And David was sorely moved to repentance, even though he had committed these terrible acts, because Nathan approached him in the right way, in the will of God, and had a story for him that he could relate to and understand the outrage on the outside that applied to him on the inside. Uh, he was forgiven he repented and was forgiven by God, not without consequences. It cost him his son. His son died, but he was forgiven and he was made the progenitor of the Messiah Yeshua, the household of salvation. We must see things as God sees them. David needed to see his condition through the eyes of an outsider, the eyes of God. Nathan presented it to him in terms that he could see and react to. Who is this man? It is you. This man is you. It was the story of a slaughter of a sheep that brought David to repentance and to contriteness of heart that he demonstrates and gives us in the Psalms. It's the slaughter of the Lamb of God, Yeshua, whom we put to death through our disobedience of God that will sober us up and bring to light that we are guilty of the blood and the body of Messiah Yeshua, this innocent lamb. It is you and me who are guilty. This is real. Yes, David's story was 3,000 years ago or so, but it's just as poignant for us today. Salvation is not just a vertical thing where his arm is reaching down to us. He is reaching down to us through us. It's a horizontal thing as well. We are his arms. We are his legs. We are his mouse. He partners with us to instruct the wayward and to reach the lost 
by extending a hand to a brother, to a sister, the stranger among us, the needy, the marginalized, the downtrodden, the underprivileged, to stand up for compassion and righteousness and to make a difference in people's lives in this world. That's what it's all about. That's why we're here. That's why God has impacted us so that we might impact others to make a difference in others' lives through our words and our deeds. When my mother-in-law was passing away, she said to my wife, I had hoped that when I left this world that it would be a better place, but I guess I was wrong. It's sort of a sad reflection. She passed on. But you know, for us, we can make it a better place for others. I look around the room and I see many, many who have, you know, many that do. We have it within our, our power uh, as we partner with God who instructs us. And by extending hands and words to the stranger among us, uh, we can make that difference. Whatever talent God has given you, Use it for him and save someone from dependence upon themselves. Lift up Yeshua and he'll lift up all people to him. That's salvation when the brother and a sister says an encouraging word, picks you up from the alley and delivers you to the steps of shalom and tranquility in Messiah. God uses his people, their mouths, their hands, their feet, their finances, their wisdom, their gifts, to do his work on earth. God used Nathan the prophet, and he'll use us to the degree that we are open and willing to be used. And God is pursuing us to the ends of the earth. In story number five, a little boy was in his house when he answered the phone. The caller on the other end said, may I speak to your dad? The boy said, no. He's busy now and can't speak. The man then inquired, was your mom available? To which the boy responded, no, she's busy too. Well, is there anyone else in the home? Quipped the man. The boy said, yes, the police are here. <laughs> well, the man said, could I speak with a police officer? The boy said, no, they're all busy too. The man, somewhat frustrated, said, well, can I ask you what they are doing that they are so busy that they cannot take the phone? To which the boy responded, they are busy looking for me. <laughs> God is pursuing you and will find you wherever you are in whatever condition you find yourself, he is pursuing you to salvation. In the words of Abraham Joshua Heschel, in a book which he penned, God is in search of man. His arm is not too short that he cannot reach down and save you from hopelessness and despair. Stop, look, and listen, and you will see that he was there all along your path in hot pursuit. In summary, 
One, salvation is the opposite of destruction. Two, salvation sets off a positive chain reaction. Three, salvation requires an act of faith. Four, salvation involves us partnering with God. And five, God is pursuing us to salvation. We don't know what life will hit us with next, but repentance and faith in the son of David, the Messiah of Israel, can carry you a very long way out and beyond. Now is the day of salvation. No one knew that more than Jesse Winchester, who faced death squarely with the enlightening words, all that we have is now. Shabbat Shalom.